Scripture from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Hear the reading of God's Word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her saying, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this may be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Here ends the reading of God's word. I worked at a church a while back that would get really into decorating for Christmas. I mean, it was this big ordeal to get out. I don't know. Ten Christmas trees and all these, all the rooms, all the classrooms had trees. And this church had a manual for decorating for Christmas. Okay, it was a three-ring binder. No joke about that thing. It was like the biggest three-ring binder you can get. And, and every, every decoration had a page with pictures and a description that included measurements. Okay, so everything on the windowsill was supposed to be so many inches away from the edge and so many inches from the edge of the windows. And uh, they even had, I'm not joking, the surge protectors labeled. They said it wasn't just a box of surge protectors. I'm talking all the surge protectors were labeled and you'd go into a room and, and if you set it up wrong, they'd be like, no, 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 no. That's the north side of classroom B's surge protector. You put the south on the north side. They get all upset. And they would walk around with rulers to make sure that the windowsills were all set up the right way. And the pictures had to look exactly the same. So I'm at this church. Poor little innocent me. And uh, they said, oh, the people who decorated said, oh, we can't get anybody to decorate with us. But I didn't know any better. So I said, all right, I'll get some of the younger adults in the church to go and decorate with you. And it was absolutely miserable. <laughs> okay. It was miserable. Because who wants to decorate like that? You've got to follow all the rules and you're going to get measured. And you've got to put it to the, the, the fun of Christmas, right, is the fun of decorating. Last year, somebody suggested we take pictures of some of our decorations. I said, no, we are not taking deck pictures. This will not become a manual. Part of the fun is decorating and be creative with it. And do you ever feel like Christmas is a little more like a manual than a holiday for you? You're going through the motions. You're following the instructions. You're trying to measure up, but you just can't quite. 
And you're thinking, okay, today I'm supposed to have joy, so I'm going to have joy. And deep down you're like, man, I'm faking it. Right? And I'm supposed to smile, and I'm supposed to get all these gifts. I'm supposed to be excited, and I'm just not. I have to admit that the first couple of Christmases I was a pastor, I missed the season. I missed the season. I mean, I showed up, right? As a pastor, you have to show up, okay? But I missed the experience of Christmas. I sang the carols, I decorated, I planned the liturgy. Of course, I did the liturgy. I preached the sermons, and yet, for me, it was dry. Because I didn't experience, I was too busy doing Christmas to actually feel Christmas in any capacity. Do you ever feel like that? And I have found that a lot of pastors feel like that, but I have found that not just pastors feel like that. That many of us rush around like chickens with their heads cut off, trying to pull off this Christmas thing, the perfect Christmas and the perfect Christmas dinner and the perfect wrapping, and we got to go through it all, and yet we're faking it. And deep down, Christmas isn't hitting us in our hearts. Words like peace, hope, and love are merely sentiments put on our decorations or written on the sides of our coffee cups that provide us fuel for surviving the holidays. But we don't really thrive in them and we don't really enjoy them the way we think we should. For the last 1,500 years, the church has had a season of Advent to help sort of curve this. It's been the remedy that, uh, that we've had against all of that. We are not supposed to miss Christmas. The term Advent comes from the Latin meaning come. That Jesus comes. And it's the expectation that not only is Christ coming, but we remember that in a couple different tenses. We remember in the past tense that people were waiting for Christ to come, and he did come as a little baby laid in a manger. But we also look forward to Christ in the moment, that Christ comes to you even now in your life, in this service, in this season, Christ calls out to you and calls you back to him. And even though the world seems so dark, light is breaking forth even now. But the church has also taken this time to celebrate that Christ is coming in the future, the second coming, that Christ will come to earth again in the future and make the world as it should be. And so Advent is the season of learning to wait, but not just to wait with sadness, to wait with expectation and with joy. And we have a couple teachers for the Advent season. The first is the prophets in exile. You, you can't see very well in this picture, but um, that is Jerusalem being destroyed and the exiles being brought out. It's a painting done of this time period. Exile was a terrible time for Israel. In the 500s, about at different times, Israel is carted off into exile. And in exile, it was hopeless. In exile, the purpose was to take all your people and to spread them out across the empire. So you lose your culture, you lose your family, you lose your heritage, and in a couple of generations, you're just basically all Babylonians or Assyrians. That's what they did. They just spread you out, kicked you out of your land, and you lost who you were and where you came from. And for Israel, this isn't just a, a crisis of losing their heritage. It's also a crisis of faith. How could God let this happen to us? Is our God just weak? Is our God not real? Have we done something? Has God abandoned us? This is exactly what 
the prophets of Israel are trying to figure out. Prophets like Isaiah are trying to figure out, what do we do? How do we get back? Or how do we make sure that never happens again? And so we, we struggle with Israel and let Israel teach us how to expect God to work in our lives. You probably heard this hymn. You sang it last week. But it carries on this plight. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. See, when we sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, probably the most well-known of the Advent hymns, we're singing about Israel because we're letting Israel teach us how to wait and how to expect God to move in our lives. And here, when Jesus is born, the people are back. They're no longer in exile, but they're still under the Roman thumb. There's no more prophets. They haven't heard any sign of God's coming for hundreds of years. Until an angel visits a virgin in Roman-occupied Israel. And we meet our second teacher for Advent, Mary. Mary tells, the angel tells Mary that she's pregnant, which she correctly questions, right? Look, angel, I don't know if you know how this works, but I am most certainly not pregnant, okay? That's right. She doesn't, but she's scared. She's got to be scared. She's got to go tell her family. Do you know she can be stoned if they expect, if they say that she has um, had uh, a relationship outside of marriage? She's betrothed and he can demand her be stoned. But Mary expects and she waits for God to show up. And do you know, there has never been anyone who waited or expected Jesus quite the same way Mary did, right? As the baby grows in, uh, in her womb. We, we just celebrated at the prayer time a baby in the congregation. Um, and, and I can tell you that the mother of that baby had not tied her own shoes in like two months, right? I'm not even sure she'd seen her shoes in like a month, right? She was ready for that baby to come out like four or five months ago. Okay, there has never been anyone that waited for Jesus the way Mary did, ready. And, and, and you go through all this, um, I've, I have four kids, right? And you go through this, the moms go through this like nesting period where you're trying to get ready for a baby and, and you're wondering, well, what's this baby going to look like? And what's this baby going to be like? And in those days you wondered, well, is it a boy or girl? And you have all these questions. But imagine Mary with the son of God in her womb. Right? No one has ever nested quite the same way. Like, what do I prepare for the Son of God to be born in my house? And what, do we, what kind of uh, blanket should we get for this, this Son of God? And what kind of... No one has ever waited for and expected Jesus the same way Mary does. And yet, what is her statement? Be it unto me, as you've said. This great statement of faith that I, whatever comes, however this works, God, I am your servant. Be it unto me. Mary teaches us how to wait for God, how to long for God, how to expect God to show up. And man, do we need to learn this. How impatient are we as people? Can, let, can we just be honest about that? Okay, it is hilarious to me to go into a fast food restaurant, McDonald's, Burger King, whatever, and people get so mad if their food is longer than four minutes long. Do you know 100 years ago, you had to kill a cow for this. You had to make cheese, you had to bake bread, you had to glue little sesame seeds on it. This was a really long process 100 years ago. 
The worst of impatience I ever saw. I was uh, flying back from my doctor of ministry this spring from graduation. And I was stuck in Detroit because the plane was delayed. And they finally told us, there's a problem with the steering of the plane. There's a problem with the steering of the plane. And all these people continue to complain. Well, I have lunch plans. i got to get back there. We're going on a bus trip. We're going to miss the bus. Do you know what I was telling them? Fix the plane. Right? <laughs> Fix the plane. I am never in such a hurry. I think we should cut corners on plane safety. I would rather be late where we want to go than on time where we don't want to go. Right? How impatient are we? I want stuff now. I want stuff now. And yet, how often in our lives... Do we have to wait for things? I've walked with many of you as you got uh, uh, news from the doctor that might be cancer. And how long do you have to wait for that? You go through a test and then you got to wait another couple weeks to get the results of the test. And it's unclear. You got to go to another test. Like we are just not built for that kind of waiting and that kind of stress and that kind of longing. Many of us have had sickness and ailing parents and marriages that are struggling and family we're waiting to come home we need new jobs or we long for new jobs or feel like someone is out to get us and attacking us. What are you waiting for? What are you longing for? Advent teaches us how to wait and we don't know how to wait. And because we don't know how to wait, we don't know how to experience Christmas fully. We rush through it and do it, but we don't feel it. We don't understand it. And perhaps nothing is, is hurt by that the same way that our knowledge of Christmas is. You ready, Rick? Okay. So I want to give a little test here. We're going to do more of a test later. But I want to kind of test your knowledge of Christmas with a little Christmas jeopardy. Are you all ready for this? Okay. Because I think we rush through Christmas so much that we don't even know the Christmas story. We don't even know the story that we're supposed to know every year. So here's the first question. You can talk amongst yourselves. It's final jeopardy. Um, but um, first question, true or false, Jesus was born the first night Mary and Joseph came into Bethlehem. Okay, you need to think, you want to talk about it? I'll give you some good music, ready? There you go. Okay, do you, what do you think, true or false, first night they came into Bethlehem? Oh, we got mixed, we got mixed them up. Okay, you ready? False. It is false. Actually, this one, the Bible is incredibly clear on. You ready? And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. See, we're very over-familiar with this story. And a lot of times, we try to jam it into one story. It's actually two stories, one in Matthew and one in Luke. And they're kind of different, and they have different details. So we're used to trying to tell it as one story. But there's also this old novel in about 200 AD called the Proto-Evangelium of James. Proto it was just basically a novel about Jesus' life. And he wrote this really long Christmas story about it. The early church doesn't seem that, to matter that much, the, the, or the birth narratives. Um, but he wrote one, and he sort of jammed all this stuff together. And actually, your understanding of the Christmas story probably more influenced by that novel than the Bible itself. And he was the one that, that imagines Mary about ready to give birth. And she's riding on a donkey, which is not in the Bible, by the way. And her water breaks on the way into town and they're rushing around. Not how it happened. All right, you ready for the next one? Jesus was probably born in a hospital, cave, house, or barn. 
You've been with me a while, you ought to know this one, because I talk about this one. Okay, you ready? See, it's actually a house. Actually a house, okay? You think of, you think of stables, and uh, the only detail we really have is that there's a manger, and we have a translation that says there's no room in the inn. Um, Spike, you might have to help me here. I'm not clicking. There you go. So this is what a first century house looked like. Okay? There was a normal family living area, and then normally in a lower area with steps going to it, and you would bring your animals in at night. I mean, it actually gets cold a lot of the year in Jerusalem at night, um, and in that area. So you would often bring your animals into the stable, and you would have mangers, normally not made of wood, by the way, normally sort of stone, where you could feed and give water to your animals at night, and then your animals would help heat your house at night. Okay? And then you would often have a back room called a guest room or a kataluma, which was incorrectly translated as in long ago. Um, one of the first places it was was in this novel I was telling you about. And so we often say there's no room in the inn, but it's not an inn, it's the back room. There's nobody in the back room, which means Mary and Joseph stayed in the main living room where the family would have stayed up kind of in a balcony area. And so they live in the living room uh, and they stay there for quite some time. There you go. Probably a house. I'm sorry, I'm ruining all your manger scenes at home. Okay. How many wise men came to see Jesus? Ooh. Ooh, you got a lot of questions. Now you're hesitant. Okay? The Bible does not say how many wise men there were. We have three gifts. We do not have three wise men in the Bible story. Here's what it says. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. That's all we got. That's all we got. Now there's a tradition about their names and everything, but the Bible says wise men. That's it. Now what do you think about, uh, what does wise men probably like or most likely refer to? Okay? Lawyers, stargazers, mobsters, or kings. That's a... That's a wise guy's joke. I don't know. Anyway, we always sing we three kings, but they were actually stargazers. They're not kings. That's a much later tradition. A much, much later tradition. Okay? So when we sing we three kings, uh, that is not based on the Bible, actually. Sorry to mess that up for you. Okay? We, where is he who was born king of Jews? Where we see all his star. These are probably actually Zoroastrian priests that would have read the stars a lot like um, the way ast- um, astrology and that stuff does today. They would have been very into prophecies. And uh, so they were very interested in this king. Probably knew a lot about the Jewish prophecies. Okay. True or false? The wise men came that first night. Yeah, this one's false. And this one, more of you may know, because there's a, we do a holiday called Epiphany. And Epiphany is celebrated after. They may have come... Uh, they may have come uh, at least maybe two years later. Uh, we don't know. When Herod goes to kill all the firstborn children in that area, he kills all the babies at least two years old and younger so that you make sure and try to get them. By the way, that's part of the story never makes in the Christmas pageants. Did you ever notice that? We never act that part of it out. See, there's whole parts of this story you've never heard before. Now, the, the text is very clear on this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod. So after Jesus is born, they come to Herod in Jerusalem. There is no way they're making it that first Christmas. In fact, by the way, well, I even said that first Christmas night, not in a Bible either. Nighttime is not in a Bible in the story, except 
shepherds watching their flocks by night. So maybe Jesus was born earlier and then in the night the shepherds come. We don't quite know that. How are you doing so far? There's a couple more questions downstairs for the Christmas party. But let me say this. We don't know this story as good as we should. We don't know the story. We assume we're too over-familiar with it. And that is a sign to me that we rush through Christmas and we don't let it sink in and we don't think about it and we don't study it. And that's a problem. Take a look at this. In the Bible, we actually have two stories of Jesus' birth. And believe it or not, there's not very much in common between them. We have a story in Luke and we have a story in Matthew. Okay? And what you're used to seeing is those two stories merged into one story. But it's two. And over the next two weeks, I'm going to take Matthew's story and Luke's story separate to try to talk about why Matthew and Luke wrote them the way they did. Um, Luke includes stuff about John the Baptist, Zachariah and Elizabeth. Those are the parents of John the Baptist. Then Mary, then she goes back to Elizabeth. Then Mary, then shepherds. Then back to Mary at... Uh, um, at the temple, then there's the testimony of Simeon and Anna, right? Because you all know the testimony of Simeon and Anna, right? Those are part of the Christmas story we never read. We never read that part. Matthews, we have Joseph's dream, the wise men coming to Herod. Joseph has a dream to leave for Egypt. Herod kills the firstborn. And Joseph then has a dream to return. If you notice, Luke's is really patterned. And Luke was a doctor. He was like this. It goes... Joseph, Herod, Joseph, Herod, Joseph. He's got a very distinct order to this. Actually, Matthew does too. Other people marry, other people marry, other people marry, other people marry. He goes back and forth between Mary and Joseph. And, and actually, interestingly enough, Mary is the star in Luke, and uh, Joseph is the star in Matthew. Mary is barely mentioned in Matthew, and Joseph is barely mentioned in Luke. Two different stories. So here's my encouragement to you. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to trick you or make you feel bad. Take it off automatic pilot. We live so much of our lives just living automatic pilot day to day. Turn off automatic pilot and live your life with intention. Start with Christmas. But believe me, this is not just a Christmas problem. So often we go through the motions of life and we go through the motions of our faith without thinking, without putting our hearts in it. Let me ask you a couple questions about today. Did, did you actually think about the Lord's Prayer or did it just come off your tongue like automatically? Did you think about praying a prayer of confession or did you just read what was on the screen or in the bulletins? Take your life, take your faith off of automatic pilot. Here's another one for you. Have you ever paid attention to the lyrics of the Christmas carols belong, beyond the first one? Okay, we already sang a song that said that Jesus was begotten, not created. That is a huge, loaded theological term. And most of us only know and pay attention to the lyrics of the carols to the first one. Take it off of automatic pilot. Let God begin to teach you and grow you all over the place. Because if you do, you're going to find not just a much sweeter Christmas, but a much sweeter and deeper faith. Amen.